Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, March the 12th, 2021, and uh, it is time for an Expert Council Q&A show, episode 2840 today. Here's what we've got lined up for you today. A real quick answer from Jeff Lawton on using uh, septic tank waste or septic waste uh, and using that to make compost in kind of the easy, simple, hands-off way to do that. Uh, a grab bag of tool and maintenance questions from Tim Toolman Cook. Dealing with hypertension, which is high blood pressure, and how home testers work with old dog bones. Sean Mills on solar appliances and solar tax credits. Dr. Ken Berry on the reality behind fried foods, because everybody knows fried food's bad for you. It's, I think it's more what you're frying and what you're frying it with than frying it as a whole. We'll, we'll talk about that with Dr. Ken. The ins and outs of modern Jeep options with Derek Abon Pietro. And backdoor Roth contributions, that's Roth IRAs. And is it 2007 all over again? Is it time to bail out, get out, get out, get out? Wham, wham. Warning Will Robinson, market crash imminent. Is that where we are or are we headed there? We'll hear about that from John Pugliano. And I have a question on how do you know it's the right time to buy a house? Of course, as always, it depends. We'll talk about what it depends on. But in the end, this is one of those questions that people must answer for themselves because I can't possibly know your life. Uh, with that, before we dig into this stuff today, let's start out with a quote of the day. This one came to me from a listener, and I absolutely remember reading it. And it's by an author named Dan, Dan, not Dan, Dan Millman, who's known for The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and that's where this is from. But I found it interesting that when I stuck it in to try to find somebody's pre-made quote graphic that I could use, with attribution, of course, all of the um, graphics cited the source not as Dan Millman, but as Socrates. And I was like, wait a minute. This And I've read this, you guys got to understand, I read this about 1993, I'm thinking, right? So, so there's been some things that have happened since then. I'm like, there's something about this, and I just don't remember. And then I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, that's right. See, here's the problem. Socrates was a character in the book. He was a gas station attendant named Socrates, for obvious reasons. So the philosopher Socrates from ancient times never said this. Though he may have said things like this. The quote itself is, The secret of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old, but on building the new. Does that make you think of anything? Does it make you think of what Bill Mollison and David Holgram said about permaculture? The point of permaculture was not to fight the world they didn't want, but get on with building the world that they did want. I find this really interesting because... Permaculture came along in the mid-70s, really. And I, I, but I highly doubt, and Millman wrote this in the very early 80s, I highly doubt that Millman was a student of Mollison or Holgram. I think they came to this very similar philosophy on different roads that lead to the same place. Because Millman... And I, as, you know, as I start thinking on and kind of like cluttering out the brain and, and, and figuring out, remembering reading this book, was not speaking about using your energy not to fight the old but build the new 
in the material world. He was speaking of it in the internal world. The entire point of the concept of a peaceful warrior is because the greatest battles we fight are internal. Milman's a pretty good author. He became very famous after releasing this book, released several others. He's still a well-known speaker and author and things like that today. Um, and he's right. Our biggest battles are internal. But what I find interesting here is that the philosophy that Mollison, Hol Mollison and Holgram espoused with permaculture, and people like Jeff Lawton, hopefully myself, and other well-known permaculturists today continue with, of let's get on with building what we do want. We don't have time to fight what we don't. It is only by putting these things in place so that they're here before these other things fail and being an example that we can lead. If we just go around and shriek about how wrong everything else is, we'll never get anywhere because that's what politicians do. Politicians point to problems and promise solutions. Permaculturists and people that actually give a shit in the world get on with providing the solutions instead of complaining about the problems because they seek the solution versus to use the problem to control people, which is exactly what we talked about yesterday. Milliman's philosophy is that we need to build the new within our, ourselves rather than fight the demons of our past and focus on tomorrow. To get to the Mollison-Holgram stage, you have to have already crossed the Milman stage. You have to already have corrected the internal conflict of complaining about your baggage and instead putting some new tires on your shitty car so you can get down the road and eventually buy a new car. That's a, that's a kind of an analogy I've used on this before, that so many people carry around so much baggage. And some of it's their baggage, but a lot of it's not even their baggage. It's, well, what about these poor people over here? What about this? What about that? Right? And it's literally like this person's driving this busted-ass old car down the road. And that's because that's all they can afford right now. They have this busted-ass old car. And it's full of all kinds of shit that they've gathered up in their lives. And it's making it's, it's so heavy, it's weighing down the car to where the tires are rubbing the, the wheel wells. And they're like, I'll never have a new car. Well, if you keep doing this to your old one and you don't get anywhere, no, you won't. But it's worse because as they drive down the road, they're like, oh, look, somebody's being oppressed over here. Let me get their baggage and throw that shit up. And they're like throwing ratchet straps, you know, like my dad used to do with pallets to, to haul pallets around on a flatbed to where you got pallets stacked so high that you're, you're worried the guy's going to hit an overpass. That's the kind of shit they're carrying around. But instead of a great big, you know, freaking uh, flatbed truck that can carry five tons, they're driving a little busted-ass old Yugo or something. And in their life, that Yugo is what they have. Right or that Dodge Omni or whatever, whatever piece of Chevette, Chevy Chevette from the '80s, right? Um, little five-speed with smoke pouring out of it. Like that's what they have. That's what they have for now. Well, the way you make that work is you dump all the baggage. You just throw it off on the side of the road. It's somebody else's problem. Get back in your car. You go down the road. Now you can get a job. Right, and you can fix your car up a little bit. Eventually, you can get some better tires on the car because those are bald. So now the car actually goes, even though it's a piece of shit, and pretty soon you get a brand new car. Of course, the car in this is your life in general. But instead we drag around all this baggage, and we, we grab onto, we're addicted to problems, so we, and we want excuses, so we use our baggage and the baggage of others as to excuses as to why the car won't go. And then we point at somebody else driving a nice car and say, it must be nice. If you're going to get on, With building the world we want, 
versus fighting the world we don't want in the world of permaculture, then first you're going to have to get through internally dragging this baggage around and not be spending all of your energy fighting the old, but building the new within yourself. That's why I find it fascinating that there's so much similarity here, even though we're talking about two different aspects. Permaculture aspect is in the natural world, and the Millman aspect of this is within oneself. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into today's show, and we're going to start off with Jeff Lawton on turning septic waste into quality compost, the easy and, well, mostly hands-off way, because that sounds preferable to me. What about you? Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here from uh, one of the listeners in regard to septic waste and whether it can be pumped out and composted um, in 55-gallon drums. Well, it's best to put it in a cage, a wire cage. Uh, many people do this, um, and uh, you, can, uh, you can buy a, a strong steel uh, mesh, sort of a weld mesh to do, uh, 8 feet by 4 feet, bend it round into a circle so it becomes a, a large cylinder, put a layer of compost on the bottom, about three or four inches, put in, pump in some of the sewage waste, then another layer of compost, um, another layer of sewage waste, about two or three inches of sewage waste, um, and then your compost, and do that all the way up to the top, uh, finish off with a layer of, of um, sawdust, um, sit it out in the, just out on the ground um, for about um, 10 months and it'll look like soil. Um, it'll be a very basic compost. Uh, many people do that type of thing. Uh, works fine. You've got to have air. If you start putting it in drums, it becomes airless, becomes anaerobic and uh, it's not the beneficial organisms you, you need as compost. You, you need plenty of air. If it's in a cage and... and you know, no, nothing can muck about with it. Make sure it's in an area that no kids can play with it or anything like that. Um, it works absolutely fine. I'm just going to say that it always seems like when it comes to the breakdown of our own waste, when it comes to human waste, so that it can be used and put to fertility, or what was called in the past night soil, um, and was heavily relied upon, always comes down to one thing, time. If there's enough time, any of the things that we would worry about using that source of fertility seem to go away. Uh, next up, we have a grab bag of tool maintenance and business questions for Tim Toolman Cook. Tim, take it away. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim back from toolmantim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer some questions for the expert council. I've got a grab bag of questions this week, so let's dive right in. The first one comes from Andrew over on MeWe. He says, I think it was you that posted a photo of an enzyme drain cleaner. If it was, does brand matter? Thanks. I've got a clog in my stationary tub, which shares the same pipe as a kitchen sink. The laundry flows out of that stationary tub. Are there any downsides to using something a little harsher like the sulfuric acid cleaner with old pipes? And your segments are great on TSP. Well, thank you very much for the flattery. I always appreciate it. Now, I personally haven't used the enzymatic drain cleaner before, but what I use is a 94% sulfuric acid. And it's okay for all pipe types, just don't put it directly into a toilet because it'll heat up and split the porcelain. And be careful with cheaper chrome coatings like those plastic coated chrome pieces that you'll see in the bottom of a sink because if you let it sit on it, it can eat that chrome away a little bit. And... 
If you want to use it in a slow-draining toilet line, take the toilet off and dump it directly into the sewer pipe. But to be absolutely honest, I rarely ever use chemical cleaners anymore, as they seem to have a 95% failure rate for me. I've had much better luck using mechanical fixes. A lot of times, if it's a clog from a washing machine gunk, and you have the ability to use a plunger on the standing water in a drain or the floor drain, it can force the clog to move on and allow the water to drain free. Or, if the clog is in the trap, take the trap apart and remove the clog if it's accessible. Or, rent a small pipe auger and clear it out yourself. My biggest issue with drain chemicals is that when they don't work, you not only have a clog, but you now have a clog full of caustic chemicals and water. And on the odd chance that the cleaner would have worked, the mechanical means will fix it anyway. I'll send a link to an auger and the chemical that I do use occasionally to Jack so he can include them in the show notes. The second question comes from Jeff over on Facebook, and he says, I have a question or three. (laughs) Which mower do you recommend? Details. I want a zero-turn mower for me in my place. I want someone else to pay for it. I have no debt. I've earned $40,000-ish at my real job. I can easily handle a payment. I'm leaning towards an Arian's Icon bundle. Utility trailer, blower, weed eater, trimmer, and even a chainsaw for about five grand. Four years financing makes a payment less than 150 bucks, something that I can easily afford if I never cut a paying yard. I will pay it off early unless there's something negative to do that with. When I decide what mower, I plan to consult with an accountant and an attorney to ensure I'm doing things legally, as I would love to turn this into a take-this-job-and-shove-it situation. Have I missed anything? I am moving, but I'm still into analysis, and I hopefully not too much. So, Jeff, sounds like you're heading in a great direction, and on big purchases like this, it's always good to do your due diligence and research. I haven't had any experience with the Arians icons myself, but looking around, they seem like a decent price for the brand. Instead of recommending a specific brand, I can give you some general pointers for what to look for in a zero-turn mower, and what I learned from using my zero-turn mower for the first year. First off, the biggest issue is making sure you get a good motor, a brand name. In the case of the Icon, the Kawasaki motor is really good. Secondly, buy as wide a mower deck as you can get, because the wider the deck, the quicker you can get the job done, and you won't regret going bigger, except when you do. Because my next point is, don't go too big. I originally got a 46-inch mower and realized within a week, it didn't really fit my utility trailer that well. And even more importantly, it didn't fit through a lot of the backyard gates. So make sure that what you get fits the task that you're doing. Keep an eye on the air filter. With that open motor design in the back, the air filter tends to get clogged up very quickly with debris and dry grass and will seriously hurt the performance. Keep a few items on hand, an extra tire, or at least some tubes you can put in them. I had troubles with flats a lot last summer. Always keep your belts, extra belts on hand. Learn how to change them before you need to. Trust me on this. I'm speaking from experience. Anything else that is an item that you can wear out, take a minute, look up their part number in the parts breakdown, then search that part number in Amazon or eBay, because even a cheap imported backup part on your shelf is better insurance than having nothing at all. Finally, have a toolkit you take with you. I have a couple of blocks of wood to raise up the mower, the tire plug kit that Jack recommends, or an extra small tire, some tools to get the job done, and the mini compressor to fill the tire back up. That way, if I'm on site, I don't have to low up a flat-tired or a broken mower, go back to the shop just to do normal repairs. I can't wait to hear about your success in business, and you're definitely heading in the right direction. Keep it up, and if you want to follow up with me, send me an email at therealtimcook at gmail.com, and we can get into more specifics, too. And the third and final question comes from Melody over on Float. 
Following the deep freeze that most of the South had, I posted a picture of a blanket warmer for your car battery, and Melody asked if I had any recommendations based on brand or type. It all started when I saw Amy from A Farmer's Kind of Life. She had a car that wouldn't start in the cold, and I know she's used to that cold weather, but it got me thinking about people who aren't. We mostly have installed block heaters up here that plug in, that keeps your oil warm so your cold battery doesn't have to do more work than it needs to. But occasionally you'll find a car that doesn't have one or comes from down south, and a good substitute is a battery blanket. Brand doesn't matter. I've always used the Napa Store brand, but just make sure you get one that fits your battery. Take your car battery out, wrap the blanket around, secure it, reinstall your battery, and now you have a warmer that you can plug in safely to keep the battery toasty and allow you to take full advantage of all those cranking amps. Also, there's magnetic warming patches that you can stick on your oil pan to keep it warm and easy for the battery to crank over when it's deadly cold. You can combine both for better effect, but honestly, for most of the listening audience, just having a battery blanket on hand for that just-in-case situation can be more than enough. And I'll include a link for that uh, to Jack to put in the show notes as well. So that's it for me, guys. Keep the questions coming. Send them in to Jack for anything handyman-related, tool-related, being a solopreneur, or cold-weather living. Take a minute, go by toolmantim.co, sign up for the monthly newsletter, or get all my social media links and join me over there. And finally, we're on the push to a 1,000 subs on YouTube. So if you don't mind taking a minute and going by the channel to help me out, that would be great. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Next up, something we all should be at least a little bit concerned about and making sure doesn't apply to us is hypertension, also known as high blood pressure. But when it comes to testing for high blood pressure, how reliable are home blood pressure cuffs? What is too high? Is, is high blood pressure something that we have all the time or intermittently? How do we deal with it? How do we prevent if we become unable to obtain medication from losing the control that we may have gained through the use of medication? All that and more right now from Old Dog Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, author of books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, as well as designer of an entire line of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert council comes from Eric, who writes, Are home-style blood pressure cuffs reliable for use, and is there a certain maker you would recommend? At what level should I really be concerned about my blood pressure? Thanks, Eric. Eric, let's start by talking a little bit about blood pressure, also known as hypertension. It's one of the most common medical conditions that the survival medic is going to see in good times or bad times. The blood pressure is a measure of blood flow pushing against the walls of the arteries in your body. In older people and the obese, those walls become less elastic and more force is required to push blood through and maintain your circulation and therefore oxygen supply. This additional stress can lead over time to heart attacks, heart failure, and even stroke. Many millions of adults in the U.S. have hypertension, which often lacks any signs and symptoms at all. Hence, it's sometimes called a silent killer. A blood pressure is measured by systolic and diastolic pressures. Systolic refers to the blood pressure when the heart beats, and diastolic refers to the blood pressure when the heart is at rest between beats. Blood pressure readings are written as systolic over diastolic. For example, systolic pressure 120 over 80 diastolic pressure. You'll see it written as 120 forward slash 80. 
Although exercise is generally good to keep blood pressure within normal range, stress and extreme exertion associated with activities of daily survival can raise blood pressure in the short term and cause problems in those who have chronically high readings. Lack of blood pressure medications off the grid may cause complications in people who were previously under good control. This is why you should always encourage people to go early to fill their prescriptions and accumulate a stockpile if they can. If given a choice between a 90-day supply versus a 30-day supply, always pick 90. Until 2017, a person was not considered hypertensive until their blood pressure was 140 over 90 or higher. Since then, the American Heart Association standard has become much stricter, with 120 over 80 or less being considered normal, 120 to 30 over 80 or less being considered elevated, and 130 over 80 the upper acceptable limit. As a result, more than 40% of the American population are now in the elevated range or worse. Stage 1 hypertension is the systolic of 130 to 139 and diastolic between 80 and 89, but less than 140 over 90. Stage 2 hypertension, a systolic of 140 or higher and diastolic 90 or higher. Extremely high blood pressures are considered stroke country, called hypertensive crisis in medical speak, and those with pressures of 180 over 120, for example, will have symptoms which you might see at the beginning of a stroke. Severe chest pain, severe headache accompanied by confusion or blurred vision, nausea and vomiting, severe anxiety, shortness of breath, and even seizures. A single blood pressure measurement higher than normal, however, is not necessarily an indication of a problem. Your doctor will want to see multiple, at least three, blood pressure measurements over several days or weeks before making a diagnosis of high blood pressure. Most providers will counsel proper nutrition and exercise as a first strategy for control. If you're obese, a weight loss program may indeed take a mild to moderate case of hypertension and return readings to close to normal. I go up and down by a few pounds throughout the year, and my pressures go up when I'm heavier and down when I'm lighter. If your blood pressure readings remain consistently outside the normal range, however, you may require medication and a normal time should be checked out by a medical professional. To answer your question, Eric, home-style cuffs do vary in their reliability. You should know how to take a blood pressure reading manually and have a manual cuff and stethoscope, as well as have the digital version. The Omron cuffs, O-M-R-O-N, that we have at our house, they seem to match our manual readings, which is how we gauge accuracy. You can find them at Walmart. Others that are considered reliable are Welch Allen and HealthMate brands. Remember that the size of the cuff in both automatic and manual brands is important. If you've got big arms, you need a bigger cuff to get an accurate reading. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you support our long-standing mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, many health savings account eligible, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, some uh, another grab bag of questions. This is on Sean Mills. We're going to talk about solar uh, tax credits. We're going to talk about solar appliances and some other stuff. Sean, take it away. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and I've got a few questions to knock out today. Uh, so the first question is, is it a smarter move to buy an inexpensive solar freezer or a cheap 110 volt version and buy a bigger solar setup to run it? Details. 
I live off-grid and I have for a few years now. I have a smaller solar system that runs my camper, but I have been looking into getting a freezer for quite some time now to store bulk meat. A five cubic foot solar freezer runs about $1,200 versus an electric one that is around $200. I could probably run the solar freezer off my current setup, but it seems to me to be cheaper to upgrade my system to run an electric one. Advice. My location is Eastern Colorado, if that matters. Thanks, Scott. Scott, uh, you know, I don't have the actual usage details for either of the, of the uh, freezers that you mentioned. Uh, but re the realistically, a five cubic foot freezer in eastern Colorado, um, I would just add a little bit of solar and maybe um, upgrade your battery system. Um, I think for a thousand dollars, I don't know what your what your current system is, but it sounds like you think um, you could at least run the solar freezer off the current setup. The difference between those two devices is probably the thickness of the insulation and you might have a compressor that draws a little bit less on startup. That's probably the only difference. Um, you could obviously, for a $1,000 difference, buy some uh, foam insulation to put around the freezer to address the first issue, and like I said, um, maybe a slight upgrade to the battery bank uh, or a few extra solar panels, turn it down a little cooler, and then uh, put it on a timer so that it does not come on at night when you don't have the sun shining. Those would all be options I would consider. Um, if it's a deep freeze with thick insulation around it in eastern Colorado where you're not going to get super hot except for, you know, the middle of the summer where you're getting plenty of electricity or you're getting plenty of, uh, of solar exposure at the same time, I just don't see why you would pay extra for that special device, especially when you think about the fact that you know, once you add solar, you can use that for other things other than just the freezer if you find you're not using very much electricity for the freezer. So that's what I would do. I would get the cheap 110 volt version. I would add to my uh, solar system and uh, I'd be on my way. I think that's, that's going to be the best bang for your buck and the best utility. Uh, next question comes from Matthew. Matthew says, do you expect more or better tax rebates? Uh, for solar in the coming year. Details. With the Biden administration's support of the Green New Deal and other environmental causes, do you expect a better rebate or discount on solar panels? Well, so, there, there, so there's two sides to that. Um, one, they have already increased the tax rebate. So the tax credit, which is the uh, investment tax credit, it applies to any solar photovoltaic or solar thermal systems, as well as everything that they attach to, including the batteries. So everything from the panel down to the batteries um, is, is eligible for the tax credit. Uh, if you hire someone, all the labor uh, is eligible, et cetera. Uh, so that was supposed to be down to 22% this year. Uh, they kicked it up to 26% for the next two years. So the tax uh, rebate has already been increased. That was increased during the December uh, coronavirus uh, bill that they passed. I think that there's a decent chance uh, in the next 12 months from right now that, and right now is February, or I'm sorry, right now is uh, the beginning of March. Um, I think there's a decent chance you might see that get back to 30% and get extended a little bit. But I think the bigger impact you're going to see is with the Green New Deal, you're going to have a lot of investment in 
uh, in sustainable uh, technologies like solar and, um, you know, economies of scale, right? So the more solar panels that are manufactured, the cheaper they are per watt. We've seen that happen over the past 20 years and specifically in the past decade. Um, and I think that that's where you're really going to see the difference. Um, you're going to see the price of storage come down substantially. Uh, that's really, and you already have actually. So every year since I started doing this in around 2012, I have looked at flooded lead acid batteries, which are like the golf cart batteries, and I have looked at other options, whether they be sealed, whether they be AGM batteries, whether they be lithium, and so on. Every year I've looked to see is anything a better deal than flooded lead acid? Because when I'm doing designs for people, I obviously want to be able to give them the best information. Well, this year, lithium iron phosphate batteries have gotten cheap enough to where they are over, call it the first 10 years of um, uh, any system that you put in, the cheaper option. Over that 10-year period, you're going to replace the... Uh, flooded lead acid batteries between two and three times, okay? Uh, if you're really, really good, you'll get through the 10th year on your second set of batteries, but most likely by the 10th year, you're on your third set of batteries. Now, the thing to remember is when you use inflated lead acid batteries, you can only really, you if you want it to last long, you can only really use about half the available energy that's in the battery that's stored there, right? So if you look at a lithium ion phosphate battery, you can use all of the energy or realistically about 97% of the energy that's stored in the battery. So that means that if the battery is just twice as expensive and lasts the same amount of time, then you know the cost over its lifetime is equal. The problem is that not only can you use twice as much electricity uh, because you can use all, almost all the electricity that's, that's in the battery, but they last much, much longer. You don't have a reduction in available capacity when you draw out faster, like you do with flooded lead acid. Realistically, there's zero reason today to go, I can't say there's zero. The only reason to go with a flooded lead acid battery today versus lithium iron phosphate is if you can't afford the upfront investment. And I imagine that those costs are going to continue to come down. So you might look at, well, we're going to put a system in now, and we're going to use flooded lead acid batteries. And because of the economies of scale, because of the, the drive for new technology that's going to be required as part of whatever Biden, Biden's administration puts out as the requirements, then when we get ready to actually change our battery up the first time, at that point, it's absolutely going to be a no-brainer. So I think that's really where you're going to see the price of solar panels come down. You're going to see um, probably the price of your inverters and your charge controllers come down, but you're really going to start to see the price of the batteries, the lithium batteries come down. And, you know, like I said, uh, maybe they'll get back up to 30% on the investment tax credit, but 26% is still pretty darn good. Um, and that's really where I think you're going to see, see the savings come in is going to be uh, in the batteries. So with that, I ran a little bit long today, uh, but I wanted to get both of those answered. And over to Jack, you guys keep sending questions in. I'll keep getting them answered. Thanks. Next up, a pretty quick answer here from Ken Berry on fried foods. I'll come back with a few extra thoughts on it myself once this question's over. 
Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Jerry. Jerry wants to know about fried foods. Are they healthy? What should he fry his food in? Is it okay to eat fried foods? This is an excellent question, Jerry. So there's a lot of magical thinking out there about frying your food. Uh, most health gurus, and I put gurus in, in air quotes, uh, will tell you that any kind of frying, any kind of food, any kind of oil is bad, don't do it. There's absolutely no research whatsoever to support this. I would, however, caution you to only fry foods at high temperature in animal fats, such as lard, bacon grease, beef tallow, chicken fats, fine goose fat, duck fat, lamb fat, goat fat, uh, butter, and ghee. Uh, you can fry at lower temperatures using plant oils like avocado, coconut, and olive. Uh, be aware that you need to use very low temperature for frying with olive oil. There is no research that supports fried food is any more dangerous or any less healthy than any other method of cooking. So enjoy your fried food, but make sure you're frying proper human food. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And let me reiterate something about lower temperatures when using quality plant-based fats like avocado oil and olive oil, etc. Um, whether there's health problems or not from overheating something like olive oil, you don't want to do it anyway. You know why? In the words of Alton Brown, that's not good eats. Olive oil, when it's heated to its smoke point, becomes quite bitter and acrid tasting. And generally speaking, stuff that doesn't taste good is stuff that we shouldn't be eating. Like our bodies have an innate intelligence to them. So I just kind of wanted to add that, to be careful with your temperatures of these oils that make sense to be consuming in some quantity here and there. Of all of the plant fats, the one that will withstand the highest temperature, that doesn't mean to cook high temperature, but the one that has the most tolerance, in my experience, has been coconut oil. Coconut oil has a relatively high smoke point. And what you can do is you can look up smoke points for various oils. And you want to stay significantly below the smoke point in most instances, especially, again, with, um, with plant-based fats. My go-to when it comes to an animal fat for cooking, there's a couple of them actually I think are fantastic. Beef fat, um, when I, like last night, I made some ribeye steaks. And they weren't deep fried, right, but they were fried. And um, the one steak from my butcher box last night had a really big hunk of fat on it. And I took that piece of fat and I cut it off. Like, Jack, you're not supposed to throw it. I didn't throw it away. Relax. I cut up in little pieces. I put it in the pan on low temperature. And I melted it and cooked it in the little crispies. I took the little crispies out. That I ate those. Those were my snack. And then I fried the steaks in their own fat. That was delicious. Uh, so beef fat, beef tallow, both of those things I really like. Um, if I if I braise something like short ribs or whatever, you end up with this huge fat layer on the top. I'll actually take that off. And you, so what you do is you pour the liquid off. You put it in something like a container. You put it in the refrigerator until the fat solidifies. Then you can pull the fat off. It's like a puck. And you can use that for cooking, a variety of things. And then you use the juice, the bracing juice, like to make your stew out of your beef ribs or something like that. So that's another one. And then uh, probably the best overall readily available inexpensive fat relative to the value of it is organic lard. It, that's 
you know, if you can't get it from someone that raises guinea hogs or something and you're, you know, you're getting it locally rendered out or something, if you're buying it, organic lard is probably the number one. And, of course, save your bacon grease. All of those things are great things to cook with. We still don't want to go to high smoke points because not only do we have potentially the creation of some carcinogens in the fat, we also end up with bad flavor profiles, and that's not good eats. Moving on, we have... Um, Derek Bonpietro giving us the lowdown on some modern options with Jeeps. Derek, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com, home of the DC generator that is affordable. I've got a question about Jeeps. Let's get right into it. Chris in Minnesota writes, What's your opinion on the YJ and TJ Wranglers? I'm looking at getting one or the other of these. Most of the ones I find are four-cylinder, and I hear they are underpowered. I'm looking at these because the price point between the 4 and the 6 is a lot in my area. I'm considering a V8 swap if it's a 4-cylinder, but I know that that would be more money in the long run. Or would a forced induction system be okay on the 4-cylinder with a rebuild? I'd be looking for a front project. For my son and I, usages would be mostly a fun driver, both summer and some winter here in Minnesota. Some mild to moderate off-roading and overlanding. Not Moab. Not sure if a rooftop tent or an overland trailer would be coming later, but that's a thought. Chris in Minnesota. So both of these Jeeps, the YJ and the TJ, are pretty much going to be very similar form factors. They're going to be two-door, open-top, soft-top or hard-top Jeeps, four six-cylinder versions. You can get standard and automatic, so there's some variety in there with different trim levels, but they're pretty close to being the same thing, but different. The early 2000s TJ model, there was an LJ model, which is essentially the same thing, just a little bit longer wheelbase which I think if you're stacking people into the Jeep or any kind of cargo, you know, basically it's not just you, another person, and a cup of coffee, which in a TJ Wrangler or a YJ gets pretty tight. I would always consider the LJ because it just simply rides and drives better and just has that little bit extra of cargo capacity without sacrificing that Jeep size and kind of uh, off-roading compactness. So, uh, the YJ... YJ was an 87 to 95 model, and I'm doing all of this off the top of my head. The first few years until 90, I believe, were going to be carbureted, and I believe it was a 4.2 inline six. The transmissions in those years are absolutely terrible. The automatic doesn't have an overdrive. The standard is made by some, I think it's a Peugeot or something like that, some French company. They're the worst things ever made. If you're going to go YJ, the 91 to 95 is probably the better bet because you're going to get a fuel-injected inline-six engine. That's really where the money's at if you're going to go YJ. Now, downsides to YJ, some people don't like the way they look. They've got square headlights, and that's really not a Jeep thing. Uh, if you can get past the looks of that, they are leaf-sprung. So they're kind of going to ride like a dump truck. No matter what you do to them, they're leaf-springs, and it's a light vehicle. So I have a one-ton truck. With, which has some aftermarket springs, and believe it or not, it rides pretty good because the truck probably weighs five or 6,000 pounds. But in a Jeep, you're always going to have a buckboard, jittery ride, regardless of what you go with, because there's only so much you can do with a short wheelbase, light, leaf-sprung rig. There's plenty of aftermarket support for those suspensions if you want to go taller or change the ride, but regardless, you're still limited just based on the platform you're using. The 91 to 95 is probably going to be the cheapest bet out of all these Jeeps we're talking about, just simply because they're the oldest. But they're getting pretty old, and they're very limited in stock form. 
the TJ is probably the better bet. So in 97, I don't think there was a 96 model year in any of them. We transitioned into the TJ. We went back to the real headlights, the round ones, coil sprung, solid axles. So even though it's very capable off-road and as durable as those axles can get, it's still going to work off-road. It's still going to be easy to lift and it's still going to ride pretty good because we got coil springs. The four-cylinder TJs are going to be limited in horsepower. So a couple buddies of mine have four cylinders and, you know, they go down the road okay. They get good fuel economy. You're not going to be winning any awards for acceleration, but they have just enough power to get the job done. And I don't think they're like something you should stay away from. Now, when you move up to the six cylinder, the four liter, I think they're like 190 plus horsepower somewhere in that area. And you're going to pay a little bit in the fuel economy, but you're going to get a lot more torque and usable torque. So the inline six makes a lot of power off idle down low where you need it when you're on the trail or pulling something. So it's very much a truck engine that can get you the power that you need. Now that comes at a price. So like you stated, those six cylinders are going to come with a premium. Now they also are going to come with typically a higher trim package. So I had a six cylinder five speed Sahara. I don't even know what year I bought that in, but I paid like 15 for it. But it was a nice truck, had dual tops, had nice interior. It was fully optioned. It had the nice radio, the air conditioning. It was a very comfortable vehicle to drive. You could get it up to 75, 80 miles an hour if you need to cruise at that speed. And I remember driving it from like Maine to Jersey and, you know, not a big deal. Even for a short wheelbase, small Jeep, you can get out on the road and be comfortable. No compromises. But you're going to pay the extra money because the four-cylinder trucks back in that day were probably like a seven or $8,000 truck. So, yeah, it all comes at a premium. The other advantage you're going to get with four-liter, especially... If with the 30-inch uh, tire package, you're going to get the Dana 44 rear axle, which is a lot stronger than what comes in their stock. So if you plan on off-roading or bigger tires, I would be looking for the 44. The sports typically were an option with the correct size tire. I'm pretty sure it's a 30-inch. And usually get a limited slip. If you go up to the other higher models like the Sahara, more likely to get that axle just based on the trim package. Now, as you mentioned, the Rubicon... Rubicon was, I think, like an 01 and up model, and this is like the serious off-roader. You're going to have much lower, low-range gearing. You're going to get a heavy-duty front axle with that, the Dana 44 matching the rear. You're going to get lower axle gears and locking differentials. So click, click, all four tires are spinning. you got all kinds of gearing. You could probably get out and walk beside the vehicle in first gear and just turn the wheel and direct it where you want to go. So... These models, I've looked at them kind of recently, and I remember them. They were in the fifteen dollars to $20,000 range, used with like 100,000 miles. And I'm pretty sure the truck retail back in the day was maybe like 22000 So they're stupid crazy for money. I would stay away from any kind of forced induction. Now, you said you're looking for a project with you and your son. Jeep is perfect. There's so many different projects you can do, varying from some slight differences in appearance, you know, top package, grills, lights, all that kind of stuff. And those are simple, fun projects that you can tackle, and you can get him kind of turning some wrenches with you. And then you can go into the real deep stuff. You can do some serious suspension mods. You can change the engine. Like, so you said you're thinking maybe a V8 swap. So a buddy of mine, I helped him do a 318 conversion, which is a it's a 5.2 V8 out of a, a half-ton Ram. Similar vintage. Now, I did all the wiring and probably took me three nights to do. Very, very intricate job. I think you can buy conversion harnesses. But everything fits like it's supposed to be because we're talking same platforms like Dodge, Chrysler, Jeep. So a lot of the connectors are the same. Locations are the same for stuff. It's a pretty easy swap, and the thing drives awesome. 
So if you're thinking down the road, maybe you want to do that, I'd probably start with the four-cylinder, get everything going, that way you can use it. We don't want to tie vehicles up for numbers of years not being able to use them. I'm stupid enough to do that, but I don't recommend that. So get a four-cylinder. It's easier on the budget. Get it going. Tackle some stuff with it as you progress if you want to upgrade. And then maybe at some point do the V8 conversion when you get tired of, of the four-cylinder and you save up a little bit more money. I think that's probably a better outcome than if you just spent more money on the six-cylinder and still had kind of an okay thing going on. If you weren't looking for a project vehicle, I'd say maybe get the six-cylinder, check as many boxes as you can, spend a little bit more money up front, but it's pretty turnkey at that point. But if you're looking for something cheaper and a project and something you can tackle, as months and years go by, maybe go with the, the four-cylinder version. That's my opinion. Great project to take on. You're up in Minnesota. I would be paying very close attention to the condition of the body and the frame. We've swapped a couple of frames at my buddy's shop on these TJs that come in, and typically the frame is rotted out in the back by the body mount, or you can just reach up and on the top rail. You can stick your finger in because the rail's pretty much splitting apart. So I would definitely recommend having a pre-purchase inspection, just like any kind of used vehicle that's expensive. You don't want to get something where you got to replace a frame. Good luck with your Jeep purchase. I think it's a great platform. It gets you out on the trail. It's a fun vehicle to take out with other people and the family and do some side wrenching on the weekends with. As long as you can stand everybody else that has a Jeep Wrangler waving at you, you'll be okay. As always, guys, thank you for the questions. Take care. Next up, John Pugliano. Um, he's going to talk to us about Backdoor Roth contributions, is that even possible? And are we entering a cycle in the market where it's time to start thinking about an exit strategy? If not now, then when, if ever? What? Where are we headed with all of this money printing and this all-time high of the market in the middle of basically a catastrophe? John, take it away. Hello, TSP. Today we have two questions, one with a quick answer and another with a more complicated one. Let's start out with a short-answered question. This comes from an active duty service member named John, and him and his wife always max out the Roth IRA. However, they have now had an increase of income, and they are above the modified adjusted gross income limit for the Roth IRA. And so his CPA has recommended they open up traditional IRAs and then use that to make a backdoor Roth IRA contribution. John wanted to know if I thought that was a good idea, and yes, absolutely, I would do that. In fact, that's what my wife and I do. I think you have a good CPA there. I'd listen to what he says. And the way this works, just for a real simple perspective, is that the Roth IRA has income limit contributions, while the traditional IRA has deductibility limitations based on income. And so, therefore, that allows the loophole or the back door that allows you, if you're a high-income earner, to contribute to the traditional IRA and then immediately roll that over as a non-deductible tax contribution and move that into the Roth IRA, which obviously in and of itself is a non-tax deductible retirement contribution. So, John, good question. You got a good CPA there. I'd keep them. Next question, a little more complicated. It comes from Victor. And Victor sent this question into Jack. I'm sure Jack will comment on it, but he kicked it over to me for my opinion as well. Now, Victor says, does this feel like 2007 at all to you? Victor's worried with all the shutdowns and the printing of money that this bubble we're in is unsustainable, and he thinks that we're headed for a real big mess in the stock market. Well, Victor, I agree with you on a certain level, but rather than seeing this as 2007, 
From my perspective, I think we are totally in 1996. And the reason I say that is that all the underlying trends that we saw back in 1996 that drove the economy and the stock market into the 2000 dot-com bubble fiasco, those same underlying megatrends are what we're seeing now. They're just different. So let me see if I can go through them real quick. First off, it's demography. The demographics back then were all about the baby boomers coming into their high earning income years. Nowadays, it's all about the millennials. Right now, we're seeing the millennials move into their first real high-paying jobs. They haven't maxed out their income like they will in another couple of decades from now, but they are stepping into high-income earning jobs. And unlike the Gen Xers, there's a whole lot more millennials, and those millennials are also more fortunate because the Gen Xers were always living in the shadow of the baby boomers. The baby boomers held the leadership positions, they held the highest paying jobs, and in a lot of ways that put a ceiling or a cap on Gen X. Well, now those baby boomers are retiring, leaving the workforce in mass. There's not enough Gen Xers to take all their positions, and so the millennials are coming in at a younger age and stepping into some fairly high and lucrative pay positions. The other thing about millennials is because now they're earning more money, they're starting to form households, they're getting married, they're having children. COVID and other events have moved them out of the cities. They're buying their first homes in the suburbs. They're not taking public transportation. They're buying cars. They're doing all the things that the generations before them had always done. It's just taken them a little bit longer to get into this household formation mode, but they are here. It's a trend that will continue, and believe me, that consumption is a huge mega driver on the economy. The other big underlying mega trend is technology. Back in the 90s, it was a confluence of computers and the internet and telecommunication technology. Well, nowadays we've advanced to where it's 5G, the Internet of Things, robotics, artificial intelligence, cloud computing. All that is creating huge not only opportunities, but it's making businesses be able to run much more efficiently and creating opportunities and markets that never existed before. And then you combine that with geopolitics. Again, back in the 90s, we had the implosion of the Soviet Union. The Cold War was over. The United States dominated as the sole superpower. And because of that and the reopening of all the communist countries that really ushered in for the first time in humanity, a true globalized worldwide economy. Well, again, today we see those mega trends, but they're moving in opposite directions. The United States has lost a lot of its power as a hegemony. We've seen the rise of China, and because of COVID, a backing away from globalization. And while that may not be good for many countries here in the United States, and particularly in North America, it will be a major driving force forward for the economy because a lot of those manufacturing and supply chains are coming back to the United States because of robotics and automation and some of the most affordable energy supplies in the world. They're all here in North America. And so as other parts of the world melt down, you'll see those dollars flow back into the United States. And then finally, the last and a major factor that had a big impact in the late 90s that drive the market to higher levels was the trading frenzy that swept all the markets. Just like then, we're seeing that today. Back in those days, it was the invention of day traders and Yahoo chat rooms and discount brokers. Today, it's Reddit and Robinhood, and it's exactly the same but different. 
But the end result is the same, which is because of all those technological opportunities and the demographics with disposable income and all the opportunities that are opening up. That creates massive trading and investing opportunities, but it also causes a speculative frenzy that results in people ignoring basic fundamentals and just piling into trades that have no underlying value. The result of that is what happened back in 2000 when the dot-com bubble blew up, and that's likely what's going to happen in our future. I just don't think it's around a corner, especially when you tie into these megatrends the fact that this year the global economy is reopening as COVID dissipates, and then you have massive, literally trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus money that are still floating through the system. To me, that doesn't look like the decline that we saw in 2007 as we headed into the Great Recession. It looks exactly like 1996, where for the next four years, the S&P 500 went up some, I don't know, about 120%, the NASDAQ probably twice that amount, and it culminated in the summer of 2000 with the dot-com bubble blowing up, and that will likely be the end result of the speculative bubble we're in right now. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Oh, of course, there'll be ups and downs along the way. Look at a chart from the late 1990s. It didn't go all up all at once in a straight line. There were a lot of pullbacks and switchbacks. But the end result was that before that bubble burst, there were a lot of money-making opportunities, and I suspect that that's what we're seeing right now. Well, hey, that's just John Pagliano's opinion, and you can hear a lot more of that at InvestableWealth.com and the Wealth Standing Podcast. I have to say, adding to this, I have the least amount of confidence in being able to predict what's going to happen to the market over the next two years that I've ever had in my adult life. I don't know. And the reasoning is I agree with John about the underlying fundamental problems. And I, I think we're coming down on the same side of this, by the way, just so you understand. And I think that the next crash is going to be brutal. I don't think we're there yet. And, and I'll tell you why. Everything he said. But there's another side to this. We are coming out of this COVID shit. We are reaching a point where, again, understand, maybe half the people in society are, I, I'm going to use a word some of y'all don't like, it starts with an F. Fast forward 30 seconds if you don't want to hear it. About half of society is made up of fucking morons. And they're going to run around with a, an anal swab up their ass and, and three masks on for the foreseeable future, probably to the end of the year or something like that. The majority of people are fed up with this shit. And even some of the blue states are starting to reopen everything. Even freaking Connecticut is reopening. While Fauci and uh, I should call him Fraudzi, uh, Dr. Fraudzi and, and Sleepy Joe, who is, who's exhibiting extreme signs of dementia, uh, are freaking out about it. And, and, and Creepy Joe came out last night. I, I've been thinking about doing a video, but I just don't even give a shit. But like the, the America he was describing last night doesn't even exist. Where he's like, well, if you get your shot and you wear your mask and you do everything you're supposed to do, you know, there's a good chance that maybe, possibly, maybe, you and your family will be able to gather in small groups in your backyard for the 4th of July this year. You know what? Again, I'm going to use that word. Go fuck yourself, Joe. And there's a lot of people that feel like me. And there's states where the governors are like, well, I'm just not doing this anymore. And they're opening up. And the amount of pent-up demand in our society right now is insane. It's insane. It is beyond insane. It is over the top. People are wanting to go do shit. And then on top of it, the government's about to hand out the biggest stimulus that's ever been handed out. I'm not for it. 
but it is what it is. And then I'm going to make the use of it. Um, a family of four will see checks as large as five grand out of this freaking disgusting bill that they just passed, this $1.9 trillion bill. They're going to spend that money. And they're going to spend it as we begin to reopen society with massive pent-up demand. I think you see one of the hottest economy recoveries you have ever seen in spite of Joe Biden. Not because of, in spite of Joe Biden. The underlying economy itself was really strong under Trump until COVID hit. Without COVID, you would be looking at a second term of Donald Trump right now. There isn't, anybody that tells you otherwise is delusional and they just, they, they still have freaking uh, Trump anger, uh, anger, whatever the hell is, TARD, right? We called it Trump derangement syndrome, TDS. Like they, they, uh, they, they just can't see reality. They, they, and they're never going to see reality. And they're probably in that half of people that are idiots that are running around with masks on and permanent able swab, anal swabs in their ass. Um, this pent-up demand, coupled with a massive influx of capital, it, it, it just is one of those things that's going to light the economy on fire. The problem, we're going to have shortages of things, and we're going to have inflation. And that might be good for the overall market number, but sometimes the stocks can go up a lot, but it doesn't necessarily help you that much. We're in a weird position right now. And this is why I think you should be hedging into some other assets, physical gold and silver and cryptocurrency, to name a couple. And that does not mean go bail out of the market right now. It does mean stay tuned into what's going on. And at some point, I think that it's going to make a lot of sense to take at least half or more of any profits you've gained during this period, sequester them away, in the words of Mike Gazer, tie your boat up to shore for a while. Uh, and this is, I think that when this comes, when we have our next, you know, dot com bubble, our next 2008 crash, you're going to wish it was, it was the dot com bubble. You're going to wish it was the 0809 crash. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be bloody. But it's just not here. I just don't see it yet. And it's going to take some fundamental underlying failure. And the key is going to be to spot it before everybody panics. Well before everybody panics. When it, My philosophy with taking profits on trading is I'm not trying to hit the top. But I want to sell prior to the exact top. Because it's much easier to get what you're looking for out of your investments the last little bit of the way up than it is on the backside of the way down. When we start the backslide, it's hard. So that's my addition. All right, so kind of fitting in with this one is a question on buying a house. Josh wrote me an email, and Josh says, should I buy a house now or wait? Hey, Jack, question I think a lot of us are curious about. Is now a best time to buy property? In my case, I don't have any real debt except a car loan. I work fairly well paying job for my area. I've already got some ideas for how I could make a property cover itself and help feed me, and in fact, part of the reason I want land. One of my main concerns is that I live in a blue state, Virginia to be specific. Specifically, I live in an area uh, that wanted to succeed to West Virginia. I would be buying property in that area, maybe across the border in Tennessee. My main questions are, A, should someone who can't buy property outright go ahead and do it, particularly now, slightly higher interest, maybe based on credit. I hate credit cards and never really had use 
place for one, which is why my credit isn't ideal. B, should those of us who found one of those areas is probably not going to go full retard, even if our state does, and we like the area, should we prioritize overall land if it means building a house or maybe pulling in a double wide, or should we try to get something more developed that would have included structures in a house? Okay, so there's two totally, actually three totally different questions there. One is, is now a good time to buy a house? Uh, there's really four, because it's now, is now a good time to buy a house for me, that's two, in Virginia, in a part of Virginia that's not nuts, but it's still Virginia, or across the border in Tennessee, right? Or should I build a house, or should I buy a built house, or should I consider an like a mobile home? I don't, dude, that's a lot of it depends. And so let's just try to unpackage this a little bit and take it apart with a question at a time. Is now a good time to buy a house? If you have the money, the down payment, and can get into a mortgage that's not a bad mortgage due to your credit, because I'm a little worried there, then it's a good time to buy a house if you are psychologically and financially ready to do so at any time. Okay, I don't see the types of properties that most of the people in TSP wanting to own taking a big hit even when the market gets a bloody nose, a big bloody-ass nose like we just talked about. I really don't. I see the suburbs and the artificially overinflated priced properties taking it up the butt hard. I see the rural properties becoming increasingly, you know, something with a half acre to five acres and in that range becoming increasingly difficult to even find, let alone buy. And when something's difficult to even find, it generally doesn't suffer that much economically. The other thing is, what house are we talking about in, in your mindset for your future? Are we talking about your house forever? Are you going to live like our grandparents did? Like, this is my place. And now it's my place to do with as I see fit. And I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to care for it. I'm going to love it. I'm going to make it into the most wonderful place to raise a family, to live until the day that I die. I hope they bury me in the bottom yard. And I hope one of my kids comes in and takes it. Let me explain something to you. If that is really how you feel. Now, I always believe in having an effective exit strategy because you don't know what's going to change. But if that's how you really feel and you're able to pull that off and the value of your house goes down, it doesn't effing matter at all one bit. As long as you can still service the debt on it or eventually pay it off, it doesn't matter unless you want to sell it. I was talking to Xavier Hawk right before we did our, our Goose podcast this week, and we were talking about how the market was just up and down and up and down. I'm like, you know, like I, I literally watched what used to be my annual salary grow and then get cut in half over a period of hours today in my crypto portfolio. Do you know what it means? Nothing. I didn't have the profit, and I don't have the loss, and the loss is still a gain, so it's not really a loss. right? But none of it's realized unless I execute a trade. And that's how houses work. You haven't lost a dime when the value of your house goes down unless you need to sell it. So buying smart is incredibly important. Now, if it was me, you weren't real clear about this buying across the border in Tennessee thing. Okay, but if it was me and if my bubble around my area of I'm willing to buy in this bubble and I work in this spot over here and I have to drive from this spot to this spot and home every day, if my bubble included the state of Tennessee, I'm not saying I would absolutely buy in Tennessee over Virginia. I would definitely look in Tennessee, though, 
And if I had two properties that were pretty equal, and one was Tennessee and one was Virginia, and I could pick either one, I'd pick the one in Tennessee. I would definitely make that a not a deciding thing. You have to figure that out, right? I can't tell you. I would probably not live in Virginia. I don't think you could get me to live in the state of Virginia right now. I don't think you could pay me enough money and say, Jack, we will give you a house. Go move to Virginia. Nope, stay in here in Texas. Bye. Right? Maybe you don't feel that way. And I don't live in the part of the state you do. And I don't know how insulated you are. But I also think the odds of you seceding to West Virginia are pretty low. I think you'll see the Republic of Texas before you see the western counties of Virginia become part of West Virginia. I really do. I think it's nice talk. It sounds like a good idea, but it's not going to happen. It's When you look at boundaries of our states within our republic, known as the United States of America, on the scale of permanence, it's just below the mountain. It's highly permanent. So I would really consider that. Building versus buying versus mobile home. Okay, let's unpack that. Building is a long process, and right now, unless you have significant assets and you're doing it because you want to get exactly what you want, it is inevitable you will probably do worse off financially building than buying. Okay? You just will. In other words, you'll be able to get more as far as square footage, etc., by buying a pre-existing home. Unless, if you're like, I want to build a home that's straw bale or sit panels or any like modern... Um, Modern traditional, I guess, building techniques. You want to put thermal walls in, thermal mass, geothermal. If you start wanting to do things like that, then you need to price the whole project because it may be less expensive to build that from the ground up than to retrofit an existing structure. Always look at the existing structures of what can be done, but a lot of this stuff, and then you're looking at the lifetime cost of the property versus the initial cost because if we have an electric bill that's non-existent or 50 bucks a month versus an electric bill that's $300 a month, we have a really big difference in the long-term property cost. So, of course, that has to be considered. Next up, buying a land and putting a mobile home on it is almost, almost, not always, but almost always a losing proposition. It really is. Um, the best buy you'll ever get on a mobile home is to buy it from somebody who took reasonably decent care of it, lived in it for three or four years, put it on a property, paid for the well, did all that shit, and has to sell it. Not wants to sell it, has to sell it. That's what I bought in Arkansas. We got a stupid deal. I bought five acres, three-bedroom, two-bath, big mobile home. It was like 1,800 square foot, huge kitchen. Well-installed, all that shit. For less money... Then I could have went, like, I literally looked up the model of the house. It was made by Champion. And I called the Champion dealership and I said, hey, if I wanted to, like, here, I'm going to give you this model, what it is, and all, like, yeah, we don't quite make that anymore. We have something like it. I'm like, well, how much does it cost? I'm like, well, you need to come in so we can, like, no, you understand. You don't understand. I'm just asking for some help here. I'm not coming to your place to buy one. I'm looking at buying a property and I just want to know, you know, standardly equipped, what does this thing sell for? And I bought the whole thing for $2,000 more than the mobile home was selling for, and it was only four years old when I bought it. That sticks in my mind, and that's hard to make go away. So I'm not a big advocate here 
of buying a home and put or buying land and putting a mobile home on it unless you have a very specific setup and that might work too. We if I was going to buy a mobile home today you said Jack you have to buy a mobile home and I wanted the best quality mobile home I could get I would go to a company called Solitaire. I don't think they're available in your area. Maybe somebody comparable is but like you know they're using 2x6s in the walls instead of 2x4s etc. Really really well built beautiful homes for a mobile home. And so if I wanted a mobile home and I wanted a Solitaire or some comparable brand and I had the right setup, I might consider doing it, but I would definitely look the other way first and price out against it. Um, I really, if it's possible, look at this whole concept of living in the great state of Tennessee. Um, we have a huge contingent of TSP people in Tennessee. We have a huge contingent of people in Tennessee who are recent arrivals in Tennessee who looked at the whole country and said, where do I want to be? And some of it is because of the awesome Nicole Awesome Sauce, and they have moved right near Nicole. But we have people that have chosen Tennessee that don't know Nicole other than hearing her on the show, and they've chosen Tennessee for totally different reasons. When it comes to states that offer people freedom and lower cost of living and a lot of quality of life, Tennessee is in a group that's fairly small. Texas, Tennessee, Florida, they're probably, of all the states that I could live in, the three that I would most, and I live in one of them, that tells you something. And the only thing that would pull me to Florida over Tennessee is I like to fish on the beach. They don't have a lot of beaches in Tennessee. I've never seen one there, right? Um, Tennessee has more of a temperate climate, so it's, it's you know, six and one half dozen the other. But, yeah, as far as is it a good time to buy a house, It is not a bad time to buy a house, if that's the real underlying question. Like, is this just a bad time to buy? These people that are like, you know, you're much better off renting. Okay, so you're better off paying my property tax than your own. Right? That's what you're telling me. And you're better off enriching me. Because if you're renting a place, it is implicit that underlying your rental is an owner that's paying less for the property than you, or they couldn't afford to rent the property to you. You're growing their equity, you're growing their wealth, and there is a place and time for renting. I was a renter at one time in my life. It's certainly when you're young and single and you don't know what the hell you want out of your life yet. Once you kind of know, I want to live in this place, if you can buy a home, it's one of the best steps, as long as you don't overbuy, that most people can take for their lives. And one of the things to look at is, if you're, it sounds like you're a young guy, you've got some skills, etc., a lot of times the house that's structurally sound but looks like a turd is the best thing you can buy. Things that are easy to fix, they're not expensive to fix, and this is why. The person who owns that house and doesn't follow my formula, the 1% formula for selling a house, put new carpet in, upgrade the countertops, basically go look at every house in your general area that's about your level of house, And make your house just 1% better than everything else. Just 1%. Because you will sell that house in a week or less 90% of the time. Because all buyers are settlers. The person that doesn't do that, and not only the person doesn't do it, but the person that fails to even attempt it, they are inevitably in a bad situation. It's what it tells you. They're either in a bad situation or they're a dumbass. They're the person, the real estate agent's like, well, you know, kind of clean this clutter up. Throw a coat of paint on this wall. Um, 
just get Builder Beige carpet in this room. Like, you know, it smells bad. They throw some cookies in the oven before we show the house. And they're like, ah, they either can't, so they're screwed, or they're stupid. And they're, they're obstinate, and they're like, I know what my place is worth. So this is the second one, this, the stupid one. A lot of times those houses are almost impossible to buy because until reality sinks in, they won't come down on price. The first one, though, the person that has not taken the basic corrective action to make the home show well because they don't have the money to, they're usually, if I don't get rid of this place in the next month or two, I'm going to end up in pre-foreclosure uh, situation. And they'll generally take whatever they can get if it gets them out. So anyway, there you go, Josh. Hopefully that helps you. Really look to Tennessee if you can. I'm not saying not to buy in Virginia. I'm just saying if you have the option, it's something I would deeply, deeply consider. With that, let's wrap things up. Uh, let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, One of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, no matter what you buy, as long as you start there, you will help us out. Today's item of the day is one I keep bringing around. I'm so grateful that I found this product. It came to me from Nurse Amy and, and Doc Bones. It's Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. Amy originally found it right when COVID started, and she was looking for ways to mitigate the potential for cytokine storm. A cytokine storm is where, in the middle of an infection or a crisis, your body attacks itself. And this is one of the things that was really hitting some people very hard with COVID early on. Joe, her husband, Doc Bones, is an older guy. He's got some pre-existing conditions, some things that have, you know, you generally don't want to have COVID and these things together. And so she looked for a way to mitigate this and found this incredible research that was done on five of the seven mushrooms that are in here about mitigation of cytokine storm. And I have a link to that study in the write-up today. It is an incredible, well-done, deep study. I've read the entire thing. I've, I'm one of these weird people. I find studies like this fascinating. Um, that's not why I'm taking it, though. If that's a concern to you, it's a good thing to know. And the, the cytokine storm mitigation was not, I repeat, not for COVID in the study. It was for people undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. And it was not debatable to me, the data in that study, that it definitely reduced the potential for cytokine storm. But as I've done more and more research, and I, this all started years ago with the lecture that I listened to by Paul Stamets, of what mushrooms have to offer from anti-cancer properties is enormous. And so I've been, you know, until I found this, I was looking for a product. And a lot of these products are very expensive. And a lot of them have things in them that maybe we don't need. Or a lot of them are like one mushroom. So if I want to take a a, 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 a portfolio of mushrooms like I do with this one right here, um, it's really expensive because you're buying one of these, one of those, one of this. Or they have shit in them that's not mushrooms, right? They have fillers and anti-caking agents. All this is is mushroom powder. It's equal amounts of the seven mushrooms made into a powder. And how do I take it? I take it in my coffee. Quarter teaspoon to my first cup of coffee of the day. And you know the difference in taste between my first cup of coffee of the day and my second cup of coffee of the day? Absolutely nothing. You cannot taste this in coffee. That's why so many people use coffee. There's other ways you can use it. You could throw it in a bowl of soup, a cup of broth, a tea, whatever. I don't know if you had it in something more delicate, if you might get a taste through with it. But it is incredibly stupid cheap. To take this stuff, you get 332 servings in an eight-ounce bag for 45 bucks. That means that 
for Dorothy and I, both of us, to take this daily costs us 28 cents a day. Not each, both 14 cents a piece a day. And that one bag lasts us 161 days for two people. In other words, almost a year for a single individual for 45 bucks. When you start looking at, the, again, the mushrooms that are in here, you know, there are things like uh, reishi and turkey tail, mataki, lion's mane, shaga. These are the powerhouse medicinal mushrooms. And they probably have other benefits. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not claiming that they cure or treat or prevent disease. I'm just saying, look at the research yourself. And ask yourself if you think that maybe something that has this much going for it that costs this little might just be worth having in your life as a very low-cost and zero-risk insurance program. Uh, remember, everything and anything at tspaz.com that's reviewed there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it, and I'd do it again. And if I wouldn't buy it, if I it wouldn't spend my money on it a second time, I won't put it there this product, in my opinion, is a winner. And remember, you can always stay in touch with all of the stuff that we're putting out on a daily basis by just following us on social media. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social. Probably the, the one outlet that will guarantee you, as long as you pay attention to it, that you know everything that we do, including the special deals that we find sometimes for you that sell out before the show comes out, before the email goes out, is the Telegram channel. The channel. The group is cool if you like talking to people. If you just want to know what the hell's going on for me, it's like having me send you text messages that you can turn off anytime you want to. Right? And turn them back on anytime you want to. It's really great. And as soon as I put out the item of the day, it goes in there. And that means when I find a really badass deal that you're like, oh man, Jack put this out. This is a good deal. It sold out. You would have been one of the people that made it sell out instead of the one of the people angry that it sold out. Last but not least, consider becoming a member of the MSB or Member Support Brigade, as it's known. You'll get great discounts, and that's all I'll say about that today, but it will pay for itself. On to our song of the day. As per usual, we have kind of a kick-ass rockin' song for our Fridays. I like to kind of end with something really energetic. You don't get much more energetic than Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose at his height. I mean, I've seen... Axel's still around. I've seen him performing now. I think he was fronting for someone else pretty big. I don't remember who now, but it wasn't good. But at his height, man, this guy was an amazing ball of energy and talent. And I remember very well when this song came out, because I was in high school, 1987, Welcome to the Jungle. And the song itself was about Los Angeles. Uh, John Adam, who puts these together, said it certainly could be D.C. now. I actually think it could be pretty much any major city in the United States today. And I don't know that it, that, was, that was not true in 1987. They might have been talking about it in L.A., but I think most major cities, this type of, of, uh, of, of music and this type of viewpoint could apply to. And I think it's only going to get worse. And kind of just here at the end, you know, we asked, we had a question today about buying a house. Uh, Miyagi Mornis, I, I answered a question today about building a backyard pond. I've been saying that it's time to get out of these urban shitholes for a long time. And I just want you to, you know, enjoy the song because it's a great song. Enjoy the energy from it. But think about what, what you'd prefer to have in your life going forward. If you're still, if you're still stuck in one of these places, would you rather be either coming home or maybe staying home, running a business or working from home, whatever it is, and just 
kind of looking out your back door like, like I'm doing right now and watching a little trail of ducks go by? Or would you rather have this? I'll keep, I'll keep this for the music, and I'll keep what's out my back door for the lifestyle. With that, another week wrapped up. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.